We are continuing in our journey, our, our uh, symbolic journey to Jerusalem uh, through Luke's uh, writings in his book, beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, which says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, which means he had the destination in mind. Uh, he knew where his end would be on this earth and what it would lead to. And so between Luke 50, uh, 9:51 till the end, we're going to see the lessons that Jesus gave his disciples. And today's is a challenging one. I'm going to have to talk a little bit faster because I have more notes than normal today. Uh, so if you start falling asleep at a page six, I'll know why. Uh, but that's okay. I'll try and keep your attention. So this one today is called an unholy reality. Jesus is going to explain uh, a little bit about the devil, about Satan and his forces. And, you know, if you want to know about evil, ask Jesus. He knows uh, what's going on in the spiritual realm. He is well acquainted with the devil. Uh, he had on several occasions an opportunity to speak with the devil. But if you, if you follow with me through this passage today, beginning at Luke chapter 11, verse 14, we'll see that to Jesus... The devil's no big deal. He just isn't anything to be worried about. In fact, the devil's not really the concern in this passage. So let's, let's read through uh, the first uh, several verses, and then we'll get into this passage. Luke eleven fourteen. One day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, Huh. No wonder he casts out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others, trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He knew their thoughts. So he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Let's pray. Father God, your message is important. Your words are insightful and empowering. Pray, God, today there will be no misunderstandings in what is said, that there will be insight and truth and revelation from you and your spirit working in us and through us. Guide us into your presence to know what you want us to hear. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the scene begins with Christ engaging in healing as he had been done all along. There was a point in his ministry uh, starting with turning water into wine in Cana and on. He just began to do more and more miraculous things and more and more teachings. Here he continues the healing of a man who couldn't speak. He was called a mute. Uh, and so no matter what he tried, the words would not come out. He, he, maybe he could make sounds, but the tongue uh, would not cooperate to communicate. So he's casting out demons, as he had done in Luke chapter 9, but the, the reaction of the crowd is somewhat different than before. There's four, four lessons or 
truths that I want to bring out in this passage. The first one is that Christ's presence will always elicit a reaction. Christ's presence always will elicit a reaction, one way or the other. And there's three types of reactions that we find in this this verse. The first one is um, amazement. They must have known this fellow because they wouldn't be amazed if they'd never known him to not be able to speak, if he's just some person wandering through the village. But they were amazed because they'd never heard him speak. And for the first time, Christ interacting with him, he could speak and communicate. They were amazed at his powers, rightfully so. Here, the demon manifested itself as a mute, preventing him from speaking. And so they were duly impressed with Jesus, as they should have been. There's a second reaction, um, and it's those that became offended, the reaction of offense. Actually, they were accusing him of being in league with Satan, can you imagine? They refused to believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, so what other power is there, the only other alternative? If he's not from God, well, then he's got to be from Satan. And um, they assumed the only way that he could have done this was by permission or the help of Satan. They wouldn't consider the obvious truth. So they looked for an illogical truth. And they found it by accusing him of being an evil person. The third reaction was demand. They, uh, they demanded that he show them some kind of proof, some kind of sign where he got his authority. Prove to us that you're from God. Show us some kind of a sign that demonstrates you are from God, they would say. They wouldn't accept that Christ just cast out a demon using God's authority. But they didn't want to kind of write him off yet and attribute it to Satan. So they're kind of on the fence. Like, we want to believe, we've never seen this before, but we're not sure. So we need more proof. We need more demonstration of power. Timothy Jennings, in a book called The God-Shaped Brain, he says, the battlefield in which the war between Christ and Satan is fought is the mind. Satan's always looking for a negative reaction or an indifferent reaction, but not a positive one. He wants to push people to accuse Jesus or blame Jesus or confuse the situation. He doesn't want people to accept the obvious truth that's right in front of them. There's several names for Satan here, and it's, it's, I, find this, I find this interesting, so I'll just share it with you. found this in my research. Uh, the word Beelzebub, um, which is uh, the, the word used uh, primarily, or first of all in this passage, it, it means dung god, or Satan. And so, let's keep that in mind. A lot of mess with this god. The word Satan, it's used seven times in the New Testament. The word Satan is used 55 times, and it comes from the Chaldean origin, meaning accuser, or adversary, prince of evil, spirits, a devil. The chief of demonic powers is what Satan is used 55 times in the Bible. The word devils, used 35 times, uh, means a demonic being or ministers of the devil, evil spirits, inferior to God but stronger than people. And then there's the word evil spirits used nine times. And so total, all of the times used to refer to Satan, his demons, evil spirits, there's about 106 times in the New Testament. If you add up the number of times the word Jesus or Christ or Son of God or Son of Man, we have about 1,800 times. So 100 times to 1,800 times. Where's the focus in the Bible? 
It's on Jesus, right? It's not on Satan. It's not on the demons. It's not on the, the, the demonic spirits. And too often, people focus way too much time on the evil and not on the good. Focus on Jesus, and you'll get things right. So when he is accused of being in league with Satan, his accusers set themselves up as judge over him. Now just imagine the created beings are accusing their creator of being evil. Setting themselves up over uh, as a judge, the one they are going to have to stand before one day and give an account of their own life. They think they are exposing a trickster or a charlatan, a fraud who needed to be put in his place. To them, Jesus is a deviant who shouldn't be taken seriously. But they're blinded by their pride and their arrogance. Their unwillingness to listen to the word of God and repent of their own actions. Rather than listening to God's messenger, his son, they ridicule him and seek to strip him of his authority and dignity. They try to expose Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They try to show him to be a fraud. He is the Lamb of God who has every intention of dying for them, for their sins, even as they stand there and accuse him. He goes on in verse 21, he says, For when a strong man is fully armed and his guards and guards his palace, his possessions are safe. Until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him and strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. So not only does Jesus overcome in this situation one of Satan's demons, he charges the very fortress of Satan. He overcomes the ruler himself, and he sets free the captives held by bondage. That's what he does. He came to set free the captives, to bring truth and light amidst the darkness and lies and deceptions of the evil one. It's not just a clash of kingdoms here. Jesus is vanquishing a lesser foe, a pretender. He's exposing Satan for the liar he is, a defeated, subjugated enemy of God. And he knows that the time is coming when Satan is going to just try and inflict as much damage as possible before his end. His his days are numbered. Everybody knows it. Jesus comes to disarm the powers at work in the world. And he says in verse 23, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And he says in verse 23, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who doesn't working with me is actually working against me. What he's saying is if we are not engaged in kingdom activity, kingdom advancement, we are not only in the way, we are working against Jesus and supporting a kingdom of this world. The spiritual truth that there is no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland involved here. You can't say, I don't want to be for or against anybody. I'm just going to do my own thing and not get, not get involved. See, we are either involved in the cause of Christ or we're fighting against him under the influence of his adversary. So a hypocrite in this context is the person who wants Jesus to come and set them free from the dominion of Satan, but doesn't want to turn their life over to Jesus as Lord. A hypocrite is someone who wants Jesus to come in and set them free from the bondage and the influence of Satan, but they don't want to actually give their life over to Jesus. They want to be neutral. They want to be half, half in and half out, foot in and foot out. And Jesus doesn't... Uh, doesn't honor that kind of relationship. It's like two people living together, pretending to be married or getting the benefits of marriage, but not actually being married, not being committed, not signing the document. They just want the benefits without the commitment. 
And he says, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no neutral place, no half in or half out. The second truth is that once you are set free, you have to determine to be, to stay set free. The next part of this passage in verse 24 says, when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes out into the desert searching for rest. When it finds none, it says, hey, I just go back to the person I came from. So it returns and finds that the former home is all swept out and cleaned. Jesus set the person free, but nothing has been replaced. And the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they all enter the person and live there. So the person is worse off than before. Remember how many demons uh, Mary Magdalene had? Seven. Seven, she, she would have been a very tortured soul. There's another fellow in the scriptures that has so many demons, they call themselves legion. I can't imagine what was going on in his spirit inside. Must have been totally wrecked. The conversion of a soul to God is Christ's victory over the devil and a demonstration of his power in that soul. Every time we have a rose on the stage here, it's a demonstration of the power of Christ to defeat Satan and to set people free. When Christ comes, he restores a soul to freedom and to liberty, and he remains there as the new landowner and the new protector. Galatians 5.1 says, if Christ has set you free, no, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again into the slavery of the law. Don't let other things put you back into slavery. So he goes on in verse 29 of Luke 11. And as the crowd pressed in on Jesus, they're getting closer and closer on him. He says, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them some miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is a sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. And what happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. As Jonah, he says later, was in the belly of the whale three days, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth before he comes like Jonah came out of the whale, Christ is coming out of the tomb. Verse 31, the Queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. Then the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. He's saying that others were sent messengers just as he has been sent. Brought the truth, brought a word from God, and they repented. They found the truth. But the generation he was talking to, they were accusing him and blaming him and ridiculing him. Uh, they won't find... They won't find that they are forgiven in the end unless they repent. The third truth, don't look for a different truth when God's truth is staring you in the face. Sometimes we don't like the truth that's staring us in the face. We want something else. God, is there another way? Is there something else? But he's saying, this is what you need to see. I'm putting this truth right there in front of you to accept because it's important. And you, need to, you can't move on until you deal with this. You're going to just keep avoiding things until you deal with the truth of the matter. You know what you need to do. You know what the Bible says. You know what my spirit has been pushing into your life, and yet you still keep condemning and moving on and ignoring what it is I'm trying to tell you. 
The queen of Sheba, a foreigner, an outsider, a Gentile, tested Solomon for his wisdom, found that he was of God, and honored him, believed that he was sent from God. Those people in Nineveh, they accepted the message. They repented. They were spared. Their faith saved them. The people that Jesus stood before on this day wanted more proof, wanted more They were just mad at him. They didn't want him to be the Messiah. They wanted someone else. They wanted another option. Someone else that could defeat the Romans. Someone else that could set everything in order. And he's saying, no, first things first. You've got to sacrifice first. You've got to have eternal life first. We'll deal with the, the kingdom later. I'll be coming back one day, and I will set everything in order. I will defeat all the enemies of Satan. I will defeat everything that God um, uh, sets itself up against God, but not today. The problem was their reliance on the law, on the rules, on their interpretation of religious regulations instead of their relationship with God. So when Jesus came to establish a new kind of relationship, one based on faith and grace, on reconciliation through his blood, the people refused to accept it. That's not what they wanted, but it's what they needed. So the question, what restrictions do we place on God? What conditions do we want to place on God before we will believe in him? Before we will surrender our life into his loving arms? What hoops do we expect God to jump through in order to accept him on our terms? I've come across a number of people over the years that just, you know, until God proves himself to me, I just can't accept. Or I just have too many questions and he's going, well, write them all out and give them to God. Maybe he will answer them all, but you know what? He's not actually obligated to. You don't really have a right to demand anything of him. He's already demonstrated. He's put the proof right in front of you. Jesus came to love you. He came to die for you. He was rose from the dead. He lives forever. Proof upon proof. The whole New Testament is based on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. You want more. Okay, and you want more than that. You want, how much more do you need before you will stop and say, okay, it's true. Jesus did come, did die, does live today for me. Are we guilty of demanding God prove his love for us? Or maybe we just are not appreciative of his blessings and kindness so far. We have a right to certain things, we think. We have a right to more. God, you know, I want this, I want this, I want this. He's going, you don't even appreciate what you've got. Jesus looked at the people around him and their demands that they satisfy their requirements, a sign, a proof that he is the Messiah, and he just walks away. He'd already healed a person right in front of them of demonic possession, freed his tongue so he could speak and communicate, but it wasn't good enough. They demanded more proof. What we get from this passage is that God is not obligated to satisfy our demands. It's our choice whether or not we will accept his love on his terms. It's like we're saying, okay, God, I know you died on the cross to prove your love for me, and you raised from the dead to show your victory over death, and now you need to jump through at least three more hoops before I believe in you. You need to satisfy all of my questions on my terms. Really? We kind of set ourselves up, right, as judge over him, making him dance to our tunes and our questions. We want to be in the driver's seat on the throne of our life, and it means we are not willing to surrender to the one who 
can storm the castle and set free the prisoner. So he points to the miracle right in front of their eyes and says, look, look, because really nothing's going nothing's to make a difference if your heart is hard and your eyes are closed and you don't want to hear the truth. Look and see what I've done. So if you're not a believer today, what more proof do you need before you believe? God sent his son to die for you, fact. God raised his son to life after three days, historical fact. As I said, the whole New Testament bears witness of that. So we either bow our heads in awe or we shake our fists in defiance. The presence of Jesus demands a response. There's no neutral ground. There's no, well, I'm not quite convinced. I'm not willing to yes or no. It's like, you don't have tomorrow guaranteed. You don't know how much time is left. The fourth thing, truth that I pick out of this passage, that Christ's name is above all other names. There is no greater power. There's two misconceptions regarding Christ and the devil, and Jesus is really clear here in this passage. You know, some have this influence of the Eastern religions, this yin-yang idea, this equal um, evil and good and light and dark and all that stuff. There's two powers that are always kind of battling each other, and neither one gets the upper hand. Well, that's not what's going on here. Big mistake to think that Satan is as equally power to God. Jesus and Satan are not equal opposite powers. Satan is an enemy of Christ, but he is not an equal power in any way. He was created by Christ. The creation doesn't tell the creator what to do. His days are numbered. Christ will return in power, and a sword will come out of his mouth, and once for all, defeat all of his enemies, casting them into the pit of hell for all eternity. Done, finished, no question, no negotiation, no plan B. And when I worked in a psychiatric facility in Fort Worth, Texas, while I was at seminary, and uh, all sorts of folks there. And one guy in particular, he wasn't very old, maybe 22, 3. And he was there. He played with uh, satanic worship and seances and incantations and whatnot. And he could, in, his evening, uh, in the evening time in his room, he could see shadows moving across his room, he, would, he said. And I, I once sat down and I chatted with him. He says, I worship Satan. And I said, oh, that's too bad. He said, what do you mean? I said, well... Too bad you're back in a loser. Because the Bible's pretty clear what happens to him in the end. It's already there. I mean, you might believe he's powerful. He's not. You might believe he's in control of things. He's really not. The only one worth bowing down to is Jesus, who will once and for all dispatch him without any resistance at all. The rebellion we see is a civil war between spiritual powers an enemy who knows he's being defeated is trying to create as much damage as he can before the end of the time. And that's what Satan's up to. It's not that he has power, it's that he has influence over us. He can create uh, havoc and wreak havoc on people's lives. If, say, if Jesus isn't there, they're fair game. Their soul is ready, is swept clean, and ready to be manipulated and controlled because there's no opposition. Russ Ramsey, in his book, Behold the Glory, uh, King of Glory, he reminds us that the tempter sometimes is a subtle serpent, sometimes is a roaring lion, and Jesus came in the wilderness not as, or sorry, he came to Jesus in the wilderness not as a predator, but as a negotiator. 
When he came to Jesus, he wasn't a roaring lion or a tempter. He just tried to manipulate, tried to control, tried to confuse, tried to have Jesus do anything other than what God had asked of him. There's never been a power on earth that is equal to creator God. There's never been a power on earth that's been a threat to Jesus in any way. Christ wasn't overcome or defeated on the cross. He voluntarily laid down his life as a lamb for the slaughter for our sins. And he turns the symbols of defeat into symbols of his victory over death, over Satan, over the demonic forces, over anything that pretends to be a threat to his sovereignty. So, if you think there are arguments the Bible cannot address, you're mistaken. If you think there are worldly forces that are stronger or equal to the power of the Spirit of God, you are seriously mistaken. If you feel that God has to answer all of your questions before you believe in him, you are misdirected and wasting your time. He may choose to answer your questions. He may put godly counsel in front of you and, and walk through all of the different things. That you, but when, when, what's an, when is it enough? You have to choose at some point. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came and died for you or not? And our prayer is that you will come to the right answer. He's given us proof. He's given us the evidence. He's demonstrated his love. Now it's up to us to choose our move. So when you read this passage in Luke chapter 11, just understand that Jesus is not bothered at all by the thought of Satan. He is not intimidated. He's not scared. He's not worried at all. To to Jesus, Satan is a non-issue, and it should be the same for every believer, a non-issue. An adversary, an enemy, but the only power or force he has is what we allow him to have. Through fear and intimidation, through the lies and the deceit. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we focus on him, and we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, there's nothing to worry about regarding Satan. So Jesus calls Satan the enemy, the evil one, the prince of this world, a liar, father of lies, a murderer, tempter, prince of demons, perverter of scripture, our adversary, seducer, and more. Some years ago, back in the 90s, feels like forever, we, my family was confronted by a Satanist person in a church that we were serving. And this person had infiltrated the church um, through deception and lies and deceit. And we found out that she had actually been praying curses upon my preschool children for night terrors. And, and she was praying against all the marriages in, in the, um, the church, that they would break up, that there'd be division, that there'd be separation. Praying against the pastors as they spoke, praying curses on them, that they'd be confused when they preached their messages. And we were, it, it wasn't, I don't get into too many details, but uh, not long before we moved to, to um, the West Coast here, a child had been abducted through a person snatching them out of a basement window. And uh, we were afraid that something would happen to our daughter. Afraid that these curses would come. Afraid that something harm would come. And we were living in fear for a couple of weeks before we realized it's a lie. It's a lie. They have no power. Jesus lives in our home. He lives in our hearts. He is protecting us. There's nothing that can happen that God does not allow to come into our life. And we started, we actually, at least I did, I laughed at Satan going, well, that was a really good one. Yeah, you had me fooled there for a, for a while, but I know you. I'm on to you. You're trying to deceive me and trick me and cause me to doubt 
that God can, is stronger. And he is. You have to flee. Talk about a good night's sleep that night. C.S. Lewis observes there are two equal and opposite errors we can believe about the devils. One is to not believe they exist at all. And the other is to have an excessive and unhealthy fascination with them. In other words, they're there, but they have no power. They have no force over us. Christ is inside protecting us. I just noticed that in this passage, Satan isn't a challenge to Christ at all. You know who the problem are? It's not the devil. It's the people. They're deceived. They've got, they're believing lies. They're accusing Jesus. They're, they're, they're blind to the truth. Their soul is at stake. Their eternity hangs in the balance. Their choice to let Jesus into their life and continue their journey with, or continue the journey without him. Like that's, that's the issue. It's the people who have been deceived who don't know the right thing to do. They want to continue without him, without hope or freedom or his peace or his joy or his protection or his guidance and presence in their life. And the Bible refer, uh, reminds us over and over that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So I like how this passage is kind of just inserted along the way because it's important for us to remember that Satan is alive and well and influencing a lot of people because they don't have God in the middle of their life. Pray for those around you. Pray that they would see the light, they would see the truth. And through you, they could experience even a relationship with God as you teach them all that God has done to you to set you free. That Jesus has stormed the castle of your heart and has cast out the, the pretender and has set you free. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for how you guide us into the truth, how you can clear up the fog, how you can reveal uh, in the light what was meant to keep dark and uh, set our minds free and our hearts free and our souls free from that which would keep us in bondage or the lies that we could believe. Let us know, Father, the power of you. As Paul said, I want to know the power of your resurrection that's available to each person. Thank you for this day, for your word, for a chance to worship you with your people. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.